Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. We had about 100 people uh, when we launched off of the campus three weeks ago at Irvine. And when I stood before them, I said, listen, it's not a question of if you're going to serve. It's a question of where you're going to serve because we need you all to help us if we're going to pull this off. And we have about 100 people that make, right now, Huntington Beach work. And that's pretty good. That's a pretty good ratio if you look around. And um, in fact, let me just ask this question. If you have anything to do with serving at Huntington Beach, it could be as a small group leader, life group leader, rooted leader. It could be in the children's ministry because we've got a whole bunch of people over there, but there's some of you in here. It could be in hospitality, greeting, anything like that. If that is you, would you just stand up real quick? Go ahead, stand up. All right. Well, we love you. Thank you. You're awesome. We appreciate it. And uh, that's great. Um, the pictures you saw were of our very first service, which you would know since it's rained the last two weeks, and it was sunny on that day. Well, listen, we're in a series called Unleashed, and we thought that as we get Huntington Beach going, that we would want to start our church right and do things right, and so we've been looking at the very first church that's recorded in the book of Acts. And while that church was far from perfect, and we're going to look at that a little bit today, Uh, They did a lot of things right, and so we're learning lessons out of the book of Acts, and we're trying to apply them to our church. The very first week, we talked about really the most basic question, which is, what is a church? What does God have in mind with a church? And for so many of us, when we think of church, we think of a building with a steeple, or we think of a church time Sunday morning at 9.30, or we think of a hierarchy, or we think of the Catholic church, or whatever it is. But that wasn't what Jesus had in mind when he first talked about the church. Church simply means gathering. It simply means a group of people coming together. So the reality is if we all stood up and walked outside, it would be true to say the church has left the building because we are the church. It is us as a gathering. And what the church uh, really sort of organized around was an event. And the event was that Jesus died and then three days later he rose again. And that so catalyzed his followers that they said, we've got to meet. We've got to start uh, operating together. And the greatest thing that they realized is we've got to tell other people. It is our mission to be the witnesses of what Jesus has done. And so this is just like two months after he had died and risen again. Everybody in Jerusalem was aware of that story. And Peter stood up and gave a message, and 3,000 people became Christians, Christ followers. They were baptized, and the church was launched. And then last week, we talked about uh, that this movement starts to gain momentum, and it's built not only on the work of God, but it's built on people who are incredibly bold, people that stand up, and in very perilous situations and risky times, They stand up and they say, we cannot stay quiet. We must tell you about this Jesus, about this guy who died and he rose again and he's alive and he's empowering this movement. And we saw last week that being bold is not a question of personality or a question of mustering up sort of the, you know, the Superman inside of me. It is understanding that we serve a great God And he calls us to pray big prayers and then to move boldly. 
And in fact, last week we talked a little bit and we prayed for some of you. Some of you stood and said, I want prayer because I need to be bold this week. And uh, I just wanted to give you a chance, and I know that this is super scary, but since you were bold this week, does anybody have anything to share about kind of a bold move you had to make? Maybe you didn't even do it perfectly, but you gave it a shot. You tried to be bold. Any of you got a story like that? This is really exciting. Come on now. Let's hear the stories. We have one? Yes. Ah, stand up. You're going to be bold, my friend. All right. No jokes about being short. Thank you. No, no. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else got a story? All right. We'll work on the boldness factor here. (laughs) Oh, we do. Yes. Wow. That is the ultimate sacrifice. (laughs) Yeah. Very good. So you just, what, you said you love Jesus and they said, we don't. Goodbye. Unfriended you. Isn't that what they call it? Unfriending? That's so serious, man. (laughs) That's great, Katie. Thank you for sharing that. That's right. Okay, so everybody asked a friend, Katie, and we're all good on that. Okay. Now, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about something that we all know and never talk about, and that is that there are problems in the church. In fact, if you're sort of new to church or you're just checking us out, this is such a great Sunday to come because you're gonna, we're sort of going to show you the dark side or the underside or you know, the dirty laundry kind of thing. We're going to bring that out, and we're going to kind of admit something that we all know. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you know that churches have problems. And I know I've been involved in church now for 35 years, and I've heard a bunch of problems. In fact, as a leader of a church, you get to hear all the problems, problems you didn't even know are problems I hear about. Uh, I have been the recipient of problems, the victim of problems. Uh, In fact, about a decade ago, I almost felt like I had to leave the church. I felt so much pressure from, from some of the problems that were around me. And believe it or not, I have been the cause of problems. Uh... I have caused my share. In fact, I don't even know if the ledger is 50-50 on what I've endured and what I've given out. But the reality is, churches have problems. And there's a couple of reasons why churches have problems. One is when a church grows, 
it creates problems. It creates uh, balls being dropped or people falling through the cracks or people feeling like we're not as intimate, we're not as much of a family as we once were. Uh, as things get bigger, uh, there's just a lot more work to do. And our church has more than doubled in size in the last three weeks. And so I'm just preparing you. There will be problems because of that, because the church is growing. Growth always causes problems. And we're going to see that, that that was true in the early church. But here's another thing that causes problems, and that's people. Because when a church is filled with people, the people don't come alone. You know what they bring? Their sin. And, you know, whether you want to call it hurts and hang-ups and habits, or you want to just say, you know, they sort of bring their flat sides into the church, the reality is I've never heard of a church that was able to sort of go moving along, and every person just got along, and everyone was sort of just doing their part, and it just all worked super well. The reality is when a church grows, and if a church is filled with people, there are going to be troubles. And that's going to be true of our church. And the huge question then is, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the problems, the troubles that come your way? And I just want you to be really, I want to be super clear about this. And, and Jairus almost kind of, uh, you know, mentioned this. But if you're coming and you're, you're sort of feeling like you've got your stuff together, like, you know, it'll be great to be part of a church, but but I kind of have my stuff together pretty well. I'm, I'm in pretty good shape. Um, maybe I should tell you right now, this is probably not the place for you because the rest of us don't. Really, there, there are no perfect people here. And it starts with me on this stage. There are no perfect people. And I'm hoping that I can promise you a loving community and a community that is earnest and seeking God and doing what Jesus wants us to do uh, that we're really zealous about reaching out to the community and showing love to people that need love. I'm hoping all of that is true. We're moving in that direction. We're praying for that. But I can't promise you that you will not encounter problems in our church because we're growing and we're filled with people and people are filled with sin. And that's just true of us as, as well as any place that I know. But here's the deal. What, how are we going to deal with that? What are we going to do about the issues that come up? Because there's right ways that a church can deal with the problems that it has, and there's certainly wrong ways that we can deal with the problems. And so I'd like you to turn in your uh, Bibles to Acts chapter 6. And again, I'm really encouraging you, please bring your Bibles when you come, because there's some of the parts that we'll put up onto the screen uh, so that we can sort of follow along together. But there's going to always be parts that we don't have on the screen, and then you need to have your Bible so you can turn to that, okay? so But we're going to start in Acts chapter 6. And let me just explain what is happening at this point. The church has been growing very rapidly at this point, and it is starting to really cause stress on the infrastructure of the church, whereas it started off with 12 guys that were you know, had followed Jesus and were zealous and so forth. The church has grown and grown and grown and grown, and now there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are in the church. Nobody knows what they're doing. They have no buildings to meet in. They're just sort of all over the place. And there's tons of pressure that's occurring. There's a lot of cool things occurring, but there's a lot of pressure because the growth is so significant. And furthermore, already in the book of Acts, we're only to chapter 6, 
There's problems that are occurring. There's people problems that are occurring. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 5, you'll see a great story where there's lying and hypocrisy and envy and all kinds of things. There's a very severe punishment that is doled out in Acts 5. If, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you want to read the story, you'll go, I did not know that was in the Bible. But there's a really major thing that happens. And it might very well be that Peter was saying, you know, I love this church thing. I just love being part of this church if there just weren't so many people. Because people cause problems. And, and the church was experiencing that. So we get to Acts chapter 6, and there is a new problem that occurs. And we want to read this together. Acts chapter 6, it says this. In these days, when the number of disciples was increasing, so the church is growing, the Hellenistic Jews uh, among them complained against the Hebraic, uh, Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so here's what's happening, is that there are a lot of people that have become Christians. Widows always in that society were the poor, it was a male-dominated, chauvinistic society. And if you were without a husband to take care of you, it was very hard for you to work or to bring income in. And so widows very often had to be taken care of. And here's what it's saying. It's saying in that situation, there was a lot of them, so there was just growth issues, but there was also some prejudice issues. And so there were two kinds of Jews who had become Christians. There were two kinds of Jews. There were the Jews who were uh, Hebraic. And that means that they... Uh, spoke Hebrew, which means that they lived in Jerusalem or Judea, where Hebrew is what was spoken, and they were sort of the insiders. They were the in crowd. They had the temple there. They were very observant of the law. They knew the law better than other Jews. But then there were these Hellenistic Jews. These Hellenistic Jews had come from all around the Mediterranean region, the Mediterranean basin, and they had come into town for Pentecost that had happened a little while before, and they had become Christians, and they didn't want to go home because they knew if they went home, they couldn't learn how to follow Jesus, and so they had just stayed. And, so the, and they spoke Greek. So you have the Hebrew speakers and the Greek speakers, and lo and behold, there is prejudice. In the church, there is prejudice. And the Hellenistic widows are not being taken care of, and so there's a huge concern. There's an outcry about what are you going to do about this? And listen, this became a very, this be, any story that's told in the Bible, because we only get just bits and pieces here and there, they're very carefully edited. The reason this is put in is because this becomes a defining moment for the church in two ways. One, what are we going to do with the poor? What are we going to do when there's people in our midst that aren't being taken care of? That becomes a seminal decision for the church. But here's the second reason. How is the leadership going to organize so that problems can be solved? That's actually the second thing that occurs in here. They're both huge. A milestone occurs. Now, if you have it, your Bibles, really quick, we're going to blitz back 1,500 years to Exodus chapter 18. So in your Bibles, Exodus is the second book in the Bible right after Genesis. If you have it, just turn there real quick. I want to tell you a story because, believe it or not, this kind of a problem uh, did not occur in the early church for the first time. This question of how leadership is going to deal with growth problems and sin problems actually occurred back when Moses was the leader of the people. Let me just set the stage. They have 
come out of Egypt, okay, so this is back, Prince of Egypt things, get your Disney hat on and you remember the Prince of Egypt. And so Moses leads this huge amount of people through the Red Sea. They come into the wilderness and all of a sudden they realize we have no government. We have no way of taking care of people. People's problems are coming to the surface all the time. There's all kinds of arguments. That person put their tent too close to my tent. That person stole my goat. You know, that person took advantage of my sister. There's all kinds of problems flashing back and forth, and people are upset. And, that, you know, that person didn't close their tent when they took off their clothes, and it was ugly. Whoa! You know, and so there's all kinds of things that are happening. Well, they have no way of taking care of this. And so they come to Moses. And they say, Moses, you're the one that got the Ten Commandments. You're the one that's heard from God. You're the godly guy around here. You need to decide all of these issues for us. And so it says that Moses, from the time the sun came up until well into the evening, he would just form a court, and people would come and explain their problems. There was 2.5 million people, 2.5 million bags of sin that needed to have these things addressed. And so Moses was getting worn out. Well, during this time, his father-in-law, Jethro, comes to visit. And uh, Moses, he's really sort of risen the rungs of prominence. He was like this lowly shepherd when Jethro saw him last. And now he's leading 2.5 million people in the wilderness. And undoubtedly, Moses is sort of like, yeah, your daughter married well. You know, look at me here. This is pretty cool. And then they had their first annual take your father-in-law to work day where they took, he took Jethro with him to show off, probably, all this great work that he was doing as this, really, the Supreme Court Justice of all Supreme Court Justices. Let me tell you what God says about this. Jethro watches it, and his reaction is so great, because instead of commending his son, he has a different take on it. It says in verse 17, Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. Oh, my gosh. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. That probably was already happening. Moses was worn out. People were not getting their satisfaction because how many people can Moses see on a day? The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. Imagine that advice from a father-in-law. That never happens. And then he just throws in this little dig. This is so great. And may God be with you. It's so great. I'll give you advice, and we'll see if God is with you, depending on whether you take my advice or not. And so anyway, this is set up, and uh, then we we continue to read after that. uh, You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. Now, Jethro looks and he sees something that maybe from our standpoint is obvious, but when you're in something and you're leading something, it is never obvious. But what Jethro says is, listen, there are certain things, Moses, that only you can do. Only you can do certain things for your people as a leader. You are the one that heard the law. You are the one that understands how God wants us to organize. You must teach us. You must stand in front of us as groups of people, and you must tell us the truth. Only you can do that. And if you don't, we're in huge trouble. Here's the first thing, and if you lead anything, you need to know this. A great leader prioritizes what only he or she can do. A great leader prioritizes But we all know the problem. As things grow, as problems arise, 
leaders tend to continue to stretch wider and wider and wider. I can do more and more and more. Nobody can do it as well as I can do it. And what Jethro says is, Moses, you are playing a fool's game. You are getting distracted from the one thing that you have to do, and you're getting paralyzed by all these things that somebody else could do. And so again, if you're a leader, let me just tell you, two things you need to remember. One is, do only what you can do. Secondly, empower other people to do what others can do. If you will do that, you will be a great leader. And the question comes, how is Moses going to respond to this? Because what Jethro continues to say are these words. He gives them this advice. Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men. Make good selections of the people that you bring in. And then I want you to put them over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and I want you to divide them up so that when a problem comes up, that it hits them first. It's sort of a whole court system, the appellate court. You know, we're going to set it up so that everything doesn't go to the Supreme Court, but things have to come uh, before others. And there's a lot of judgments that can be made by other people. You don't need to make them all. And then finally he says, and this will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. You see, he says it's a win-win. You don't get burned out because you know what? There is nothing noble about a burned out leader. A burned out leader is just a dumb leader. In fact, the darker side is that a burned out leader is a leader that has great pride and selfish ambition, and thinks that he or she is the only one that can do it. And what Jethro says here is, there's no reason to go down that road, to burn out. And secondly, you'll get other people in the game, and that's what it's all about. You need other leaders. And he says, and the people will be satisfied. And to Moses' credit, he does it. And in fact, what he sets up uh, is a system of leadership that endures as they enter the promised land, as they conquer the land. And do you know what the book is called after uh, the book of Joshua, which is the conquest? What's the next book in the Bible? It is called Judges. Judges. Moses set up Judges to lead. The whole book of Judges is about the leaders that Moses, the leadership structure that Moses had established. He sets up a way of leading that is decentralized. It was brilliant. The ancient world had never seen it before. All right, so let's go back over to Acts because we have this same problem. We've got leaders. They've got too much to do on the the, the 12 people that have led the church. The church has expanded. There's all kinds of sin problems in the church. What are these leaders going to do? And it's so interesting because starting in verse 2, it says these words. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together, all the people that were in the church, and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Now, this is such an interesting thing because what they say is, listen, it would not be right for us to neglect the one thing that we can do better than anyone. And what was that? They could preach the word. And they could pray big prayers. And they said, listen, we know you can't teach the word because you didn't walk with Jesus for three months. And just incidentally, the Bible is not out at this point. 
There is no New Testament. The only teaching of the word comes from the mouths of the people who had followed Jesus. And that was a job that only they could do. Only they could do that job. And so they say, well, that wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good for us to start stretching so that we don't do that job well. So they say, we need to pick people uh, that will, and there's this great term, wait on tables. Wait on tables. Uh, That is actually a Greek word, and we don't use the Greek very often around here since most of us don't normally speak Greek. Um, But uh, diakonia. Can you say that? Diakonia. Let's say it on three. One, two, three. Diakonia. That is the word that is translated wait tables. It is a very dynamic word. Let me tell you the meanings of this word. The first meaning simply means waiting on tables. And it was specifically, we need a group of humble administrators that will solve this problem when it comes to the widows not having equal distribution. So it's just like, you know, roll up your sleeves, come up with a plan, figure this out. We don't want to have this problem anymore. And so that's the first thing. We're going to get people that wait on tables. It probably sounds like kind of an insignificant small job, but it's a big problem. Disciples can't do it. They've got to focus on teaching the word and praying. And so they say, all right, so select some people that will wait on tables. Literally, it means wait on the food tables. You know, make sure the food is getting out on the tables to the widows. That's the idea here. The literal translate. This is such a great thing. Diakonia. It's such a great, great word. Here's what it means. It means raise the dust. That is literally what it means. Raise the dust. And you're like, why is that great? That is so obscure. What are you talking about? All right, so a horse is galloping down a dirt road, and what happens? The dust is raised because there's activities. There's things that are happening. If you're not careful, it will be coated with dust from the horse that gallops past. And really the idea here is move into action. Create an impact. Raise the dust. Make it a different place than it would be if you weren't there. Make a situation happen. You're the one. Serve. Do something. Make a difference. It is such a great word. Raise the dust. And that's literally what this word means. And so here's what the disciples are saying. They're saying, you know what? We're raising the dust. We're raising the dust by healing people, and we're teaching God's word, and we're praying, and all kinds of things, and leading. We need more people to raise the dust. We need other people that will come along and do their parts because Frankly, this church is too big for 12 people to raise all the dust. We need a bunch of people to raise the dust. Now, eventually, and this is so cool, eventually in the New Testament, you know what this word comes to mean? It comes to mean minister. Is that the most amazing thing? It comes to be minister. Like, and you guys all look at me and you go, well, Kevin or Lowe, they're the ministers. That was never the intention of this word. The intention of the word always was that it would mean every person in the church is a minister. Diakonia. Every one of us do that job. Every one of us raise the dust. Every one of us are part of the solution to the problems. And the genius of the 12 at this point is they say, we cannot do it alone. We are not going to try to do it alone. It would not be right for us to do it alone. We're going to get other people in the game. We're going to get other people that join the fight. That's our job. 
Our job is to get others engaged. If you continue to read just in the next verse, we see that they make their selections then. They choose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, uh, Nancanar. I don't know. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. I'm sad for him. Uh, <laughs> Timon, later became a star in the Lion King. Uh, Paraminas and Nicholas can nail that one. That's a good thing. And uh, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And you had this first group of people. You'll recognize the deacon also comes out of this word. Uh, And you have this group of people. There's one other thing that happens that is really quite amazing. Is that they say, listen, as far as qualifications go, there's really only one basic qualification. It sort of fills into other areas. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit. They need to be full of the Spirit of God. In other words, they've got to be believers, but not just believers. They've got to be people that say, I want God to empower me. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit work through me to do these things. And that becomes a very important thing. And let me tell you exactly why. Because what the church does, folks, what we try to do is not human in nature. It is supernatural in nature, honestly. Because the church's goal is to create a movement where people's lives are transformed. And the Bible is very clear that people cannot transform somebody else's life. We don't have that power. But we can be used by the Holy Spirit in a partnership where we do our part and God does his part and people's lives actually change. That people are transformed. Not only their life, but their eternity, that everything about them becomes different. Now, it's such a slow process. In some cases, you go, the transformation is so slow and incremental, and I take three steps forward and fall back two steps. But you know the reality that is true about people that follow Jesus, people that get in the church, is their lives are being transformed, not by their work, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. But here's the deal. The Holy Spirit almost never does it by himself. He always says, listen, we'll do this as a team. I need you to do your part. In this case, Kevin, I need you to teach as well as you can teach. I need you to do the best you can. But Kevin, don't you ever, 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 ever think that you're changing people's hearts. Because that's where I come in. And I'm the one that comes in and empowers your words and convicts and teaches and moves. And don't ever think that Jairus is standing up here and he's the worship guy and I can only worship with him because here's the reality. Whether he does a great job or he's off or whatever the things are, the Holy Spirit charges that. And if you're truly worshiping when he's here leading, it's not Jairus. It's the Holy Spirit. And you're submitting to the Holy Spirit and saying, God, have your way with me. And when Lo does the work that he does, one of the best shepherding people I've ever seen, and you feel so loved when you leave Lo, and he understands you, and he's helping you move along, I just want to make it clear, that's not just Lo. It's not that he's just a genius at that. It's the Holy Spirit works through Lo and connects with people in ways that are intimate and empowering, and people go away changed, transformed, because the Holy Spirit does it. And that has always been God's plan for the church. 
God's plan is the Holy Spirit's going to do work, but what you need is every single person to participate, every person to raise the dust, to do their part, to roll up their sleeves, even when you say, I don't know if I can do it, I'm so, let, let me tell you the very first thing that I ever served at, the very first thing, it was on the trip that I became a Christian, junior in high school, we're at a beach down in San Diego, the ugliest beach in California, and uh, one of the events there, one of the things, it was a high school group, one of the events was a tug-of-war contest over a mud pit. And this mud was the grossest mud you have ever seen. I think, I honestly think it was sewage. That's what I think, but whatever it was, it smelled terrible. It, uh, if it happened to get in your mouth, it tasted terrible. If it got in your mouth, you would eventually die. You know, it was that kind of thing. And my first job was to go in and fill the mud pit. You know, the guy that was leading said, I need two or three guys to come and help me get this thing ready. And we had to go into this mud pit, mud up to our knees, and try to get the rope in there and get it all, you know. It was so gross. Now, what would have happened if I looked at that and said, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do I don't want to serve. This is not raising dust. This is mud. We can't do this. What God's looking for is people that say, you know what? I'll raise the dust. I'll do it. Let me tell you about the first message I ever gave to adults. In fact, I didn't give it because I'm sure it was just a coincidence. But the day before, I was to give this message to a group of about 50 people. But I was so nervous that I got laryngitis the day before. I'm sure it was just coincidental. had nothing to do with psychosomatic anything. And I remember driving to church that day because I called the pastor in a panic that night and said, I can't, I can't talk. You're going to have to do it. And I remember him saying, I'll take care of it. And driving to church the next morning, and my voice was totally fine. And I remember screaming in the car, trying to make myself hoarse, so it doesn't sound like I just lamed out. And he was so great. He didn't let me off the hook. He goes, you'll be ready by next week. And so I had a whole nother week to panic about it. And I gave, you know, what undoubtedly is the worst message that's ever been given in Western civilization. I mean, for one thing, it was super long, which I still kind of have that, that problem. But it just went on and on and it land the plane. But you know what? It was my engagement. It was my first step in. And I just want to encourage you, some of you serve. Some of you have never served. And I'm here to tell you, it's your job to raise the dust. It's your job to get involved. Our job as leaders is to give you the opportunity. But here's the reality. Our church can only do what our church can do if we all raise the dust, if we all engage, if we all join in. And the thing that's most amazing is God gives each of us a certain gift and a certain passion and a certain expression of experience where there, this is honestly true. There is something you can do in our church that nobody else can do like you can do. That is, and I, it's not because I know you, it's because the Bible says that. Every single one of you, however many there are, you have been placed in this church because there's a gift, there's, there's a raising of the dust that you can raise that nobody else in our church can raise. And here's the other reality. If you don't raise it, it just doesn't get done. Other people may jump in and try to do it. They won't do it as well as you. But whatever that is, it just won't get done as well. Someone somewhere will pay a terrible price 
because you're not engaged, because you decided you weren't going to do it. <laughs> I didn't think that was funny. Okay. Well, that's fine. All right. So that's funny. Ha! Okay. So here's the last thing. So what we learn is, so the word of God spread, verse 7, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's sort of a throwaway line. You think, so what? Why are they talking about priests? Let me just tell you, Jewish priests that became Christians, guess what they lost? Their job. They lost their job. They lost their, I mean, they were paid to be priests. That was their job. It'd be like me becoming a Buddhist. How long are you going to keep me as your lead pastor? Kevin the Buddhist. We're really interesting. Yeah, that, I'm going to lose my job. And that's what happened here. These pre, it's amazing. Transfer, people are becoming Christians. It's huge, huge, huge risk, huge boldness, huge challenge. All right, so let me land the plane. What am I talking about? Some of you are leaders. Let me just tell you, you are not a great leader if you can do everything. You are a great leader if you do what only you can do and empower other people to do what they need to do. That is great leadership. For those of you that lead, you're a small group leader, you lead over in the children's ministry, you head up the ushers and greeters, you're involved in the tech team, you do stuff to set up and take down. I'm telling you, if you lead, you are not great because you do everything. You are great because you do what you can do, what only you can do, and you get somebody else engaged. And leaders, I need you to step up. I don't need you to be more busy. I need you to step up, do what only you can do, get other people engaged. That's what leaders do. Secondly, there's a bunch of you that are not raising the dust. And today's the day. Today's the day you get an opportunity. Now listen, we were really, we want to be very careful about not being manipulative and, you know, if you love God, you know, you're going to sign up on this little card that we have. That's not the issue. Here's what, I want you to take this as a bigger challenge in your life. Maybe, maybe you're going to play it here at Huntington Beach. That would be fantastic. We could use you. Maybe it's in some other place. So this is not just about getting people to, to sign up to be volunteers here. This is about a bigger picture. You are called to raise the dust. You are called to be a servant, to be a minister, to do your part. And today, if you walk out and you say, well, I'll think about it, you know, maybe down the line do something, I'm just telling you, your decision is, I'm not doing that. Because you're not going to come back to this. Now's the time to do business with God. And in a few minutes, we're going to give you a chance to do a little business with God on this. Incidentally, what we have in here, if you are interested in getting involved, because we need more people here, there's a card that looks like this. It's in your program. It's pretty self-explanatory. It has a list of things that you could do if you want to do it here. And you can fill it out, put it in the offering box. That's a real easy way to apply it. But here's the bigger point. Make a decision that you're raising dust. Make that decision. And then the final thing is, realize it is not you. It is the Holy Spirit that works in you. It's a partnership. It's an arrangement. And that when the Holy Spirit works through you, major power is unleashed. That's how the church becomes supernatural. It's because of God's work through you. There is a great story that is told. I think it's actually a legend. I don't think that it really happened. But there was a great pianist, Jan Pederewski. And he would do concerts. And he was coming to a great concert hall. And there was all kinds of high dignitaries that were there to see him perform. You know, seats were sold out for months in advance. There was also a woman who brought her nine-year-old son, and her hope was that her son would watch this great p 
pianists play and be inspired and want to play the piano more. And so as the hall was filling in and there was sort of this anticipation, very exciting, all that was on the stage was this huge grand piano. The little boy, when the, his mother got distracted, actually got up out of his seat, walked around, walked up onto the stage, and sat on the bench behind this great piano. And then he started playing the only song that he knew. And you'll recognize it. A song that we can all play, Chopsticks. And as he started to play Chopsticks, the crowd hushed, and then they looked up on the stage and realized what had happened. This bratty little boy had walked up on the stage and was playing Chopsticks. And they thought to themselves, that is such an annoying song. Where is his mother? Where is security? Who's going to get this kid off of the stage? And right at that time, the great Paderewski walked out onto the stage. He looked across and he saw this little boy playing chopsticks. And now there was tons of tension in the air. What was the maestro going to do? And he stalked across the stage. The little boy didn't see him. Came up behind him, looked down over the keys, looked down on the little boy, bent down, whispered into his ear and said, keep playing. Don't stop. And he started to play around the boy a duet that was the highlight of the whole show. People talked about that day for years to come. The little boy and the maestro doing something together. And that is the call of our church. It is to do something with the maestro that no one will ever forget. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are amazed when we think about the very fact that you could do this so much better without us. You could reach this world so much, we think, so much better without us, without our sin, without our troubles, without the junk that we bring in. And yet you refuse to do it unless we are willing to raise the dust. But as we do that, you take our meager little offering, you take the little fallible stuff that we do, and something amazing occurs, and lives are changed, and cities are won. People are reached. Lord, we pray that you would work in our lives in this way. We pray that we would be faithful to our part, and then you would do what only you can do, that you would change lives. Lord, as we reflect now a little bit on the opportunities before us, as we just take some time to think about it, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, that you would call us into service. This is not about my call. This is about your call. Speak clearly, Lord, and we will follow. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.